Well, this morning we are uh, continuing our journey through the book of James. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to grab it. We're going to get to it in just a moment. Um, But we have been working through this book of James for the past, well, it's been, now this will be week six. We've really kind of been doing it to the premise of, of the idea of authenticity, of really looking at our lives and exploring what it might look like if we lived authentic lives. And really that picture is this. What if what we say we believed about Jesus and what God did for us through Christ on the cross, what if that truly was marked in our life and our lives were visible reflections of what God did in us? That authenticity that says, I live what I truly believe. Because one of the things that I've come across in my own life is that I feel like my life is my faith life and my, my life in Christ is, is somewhat of a, a, a place in the, in the middle. I live in the mediocrity of life a lot. I live in the, I know God's calling me for more, but I'm stuck here in my safety and my comfort. What would it look like to truly step into who God is calling me to be and begin to live an authentic life, a life that says, Jesus, my whole life is yours, everything about it. So we've been exploring the book of James, this lens of authenticity, of saying, God, what would it look like if I truly gave you all of me? That you died and gave me life. What if I surrendered my entire life to you? Every single little part. And we talked last week uh, about recognizing who we are. That Jesus calls us a beloved and that he takes our, 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 our dirty, broken lives and he redeems us. And he calls us to live in a way that we're free. And we talked about how we love other people. And what it might look like if we stepped into a life and began to really live who God says we are. We really explored that picture of saying, if God calls me free and redeemed, what would it take for me to begin to truly live that way? As we kind of explore this idea of authenticity. If you're here for the first time, all these messages are available on our website. You can listen to them if you want to. But we're not going to backtrack too much in order to keep up with where we're going. But I just want you to have a a little picture to understand that we're talking about James in the lens of authenticity. And we're going to take that one step farther uh, this morning as we begin to talk about authentic faith. What would it look like if, if we had an authentic faith? A faith that is real and alive, that, that is courageous, that is strong, that is bold. A faith that drives us to say yes to Jesus. Because I find so oftentimes in my own life, my faith is lifeless. And I mentioned that as we opened, it feels a little bit more like a Christian cliche at times then it does something that's living and active, that's, that's powerful and courageous. I mean, I feel like I just pay lip service sometimes by saying, God, I, I have a faith or I trust you or I believe in you. They're just words because my life is not echoing those, that truth, those words. So this morning, and actually over the next two weeks, we're going to divide this section up into two weeks. We're going to look at what it means to really begin to have an authentic faith, a faith that says, God, I believe in who you are. And that so changes me that I live differently, that I trust differently, that I live with courage, that I don't live lifeless, that I live out of my comfort zone, and I live in a way that reflects your glory to the world, that my faith is not something that I have, but it's something that I live. So we're going to be exploring that over the next two weeks as we kind of jump into the most difficult passages in the book of James that we're going to wrestle with. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 14 this morning, I think. 14. I'm going to read it to you. We're just going to do five verses. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about some baseline truths that we need to set up, and then I'll kind of work through it a little bit. But if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 2, verse 14. And before we open it together, let's take a moment and just pray. God, we thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. We know that it penetrates, as you say, even the dividing joint. And marrow judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. It divides soul and spirit. 
We know this morning as we open your word, we will encounter you. Your word is truth. It is right and it is real. So Father, prepare us to meet with you. Ask God this morning just to to teach you something. God, say, teach me something about who you are and what it means to have faith. Just pray that or pray something similar. God, move in me. Teach me. Instruct me. Just whisper that in your own heart. Pray for someone beside you, even if you've never met them and you don't know their name. Just if anything that's kind of weird, just pray. Just say, God, I want you to move in this person's life. Just pray for somebody else. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we're so grateful for what you've done in us. We pray that over the next few minutes we'd give, give you our undivided heart so that you would teach us and instruct us through your Holy Spirit as we open your word together. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. Amen. So James 2, and, then, and I'm going to kind of unpack it because these are <clears throat> some difficult, difficult chapter and, and text that we're going to deal with in the next couple of weeks. So James 2, chapter 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith <clears throat> but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So there is a, a lot historically that surrounds this chapter in our text. There's a lot of debate that's happened over the centuries about James' words versus Paul's words out of the book of Romans in chapter 3. Because if you read these chapters at face value, you pull them out of context and you read them, it looks as though James and Paul are saying very different things. It looks as though Paul in Romans 3 is saying, you are only saved by faith alone, justified by faith saved by faith. And it looks at face value, especially as we look at next week, that James is saying, no, you are saved by what you do, right? Faith without works is dead. And this has been a classic kind of debate throughout history, theologically, about Scripture really is, is are we saved by what we do or, or by what we believe? Is it faith alone or faith or deeds or some kind of, kind of, a, kind of blend of all of it? And so most of us, or most even scholars, don't really do a whole lot of dealing with this passage. <clears throat> we kind of skate over it, pretend it doesn't exist, and we don't mess with it. Because it's complicated. But my philosophy is really, well, what fun is there in that? Because the thing is, is that Scripture, the part of its kind of amazing nature is its beautiful complexity, its depth. The fact that Scripture is alive and breathing, that it is God's spoken word, and that it is true and that it is right and that it never contradicts itself so we need to get in there and figure out exactly what's happening and so let me give you a little bit of word about this text before we kind of really dive into it and really dive into this particular struggle next week and that is this we have to keep in mind one single truth and that is when we read scripture we can't isolate text from its context on some level we have to read context into these texts 
James and Paul are writing to very different audiences, okay? Paul in Romans chapter 3 is writing to a a predominantly not believer-based group of people, a Greek mentality, a bunch of people that are needing to meet Jesus for the very first time. James, as we've discovered over the past four weeks, is writing just to Christians. He's writing to those believers, all right, the people that have already been saved, have been regenerated, made new in Jesus Christ. They surrendered their heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. James is writing to believers. Paul is very much writing to someone else. Paul and James actually agree completely on this doctrine, but we have to take into context who they're writing to and what they're trying to say. What we're going to learn next week is that it's not a faith and or deeds, but instead it's how we live, blending both, saying that we're saved by grace and that our reflection of our lives should be poured out by how we live, which we're going to get into next week. But I want us to understand this. We're not dealing with a contradiction in text. Instead, we're dealing with audience. What James is teaching is very different group of people to who Paul is teaching. Now we need to keep that in the back of our minds because what we're going to learn here are three quick baseline truths before we get into this text and really unpack it. I want you to know three quick things. These are things that we've learned from our study in James already and that we've gleaned from other places in scripture. And these things are going to inform how we understand this passage. Because what James is really getting into is an authentic faith versus an inauthentic faith. So what does it mean to have a true, authentic, genuine faith Verse a faith that's inauthentic in its nature. So here are three baseline truths that we have to start with, all right? The first is this. You and I, we are saved by grace alone, all right? That truth is paramount for us to understand really what James is getting at. We learned that in the first part of James chapter 1. We also learned it all throughout Scripture that we have been saved by grace alone. Now what that means is this, that you and I are delivered from the wrath of God from hell because of God's grace and nothing that we will do. Because there is something good in God, not because there is anything good in us. Which for Americans, a lot of us, this is really hard to grasp. Because we have this sort of optimism that we've been taught since birth that if we just put our minds to something, we can accomplish pretty much anything. And believing that growing up, we carry that over when we become Christians into our theology and we don't necessarily believe that there's anything inherently wrong with the human condition. That all of us on some level are inherently good and therefore there's good things in us. What we have learned from the very beginning of, of this text and what we've talked about for years and years is that scripture teaches something very different. That from the fall of Adam and Eve, all right, sin has entered and wreaked havoc into mankind. That we are all kind of struck with sin. And we're not ill and and dying. We are absolutely and totally dead in our sin. We are completely dead in sin. We have no hope. The Bible teaches very clearly that because of our death and our sin, God's grace, only God's grace, His free gift of grace, rescues us out of that sin because of something amazingly great in God and not amazingly great in you or me. So we're saved by grace alone. Now, it's really important that we understand that because James is going to build on that, and he's building on that as a framework of what he's teaching about faith because he's talking to people who have already surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, have already accepted this grace of Jesus Christ, have been saved. He's already dealt with that. So his talk, what he's talking about in terms of deeds and action that we'll get into today is built on that one baseline truth, been saved by grace. All right. The second baseline truth is this. Nothing you can do will ever earn or merit God's love for you. In other words, nothing in your life that you do will ever make God love you more. 
all right? This is really a continuation of the first, but it's important enough to make mention because it, really we are taught different from the very beginning of our lives. We believe in Santa Claus and we believe that we're on a naughty list and if we do enough things we can get off the naughty list and get onto the nice list, right? We believe that in our marriages, if I just do enough good things, my spouse will overlook the bad things. And we kind of carry that over into our relationship with Christ, meaning that I know I've got a lot of garbage and junk, but if I just do enough good moral kind of things, that somehow God may overlook that and see that I'm trying and I'm giving my best effort and that God will, will overlook that and say, well, at least Trevor's giving it his best, right? I know he's kind of a mess over here, but look, he's trying really hard over here. The truth is, is that nothing gets us closer to God's love. God will never love you more than he already does. God's grace is for you. It was laid out through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross and nothing you can do, no amount of good living, moral superlative living, will ever get you closer to God's love. So thinking that you're going to escape God's wrath by how you live is false. We're saved by God's grace alone. Nothing can get us closer than we already are. God's ex- extension of his love and grace is through Jesus Christ. So those two, the two truths are paramount. And the third one is this. If we truly understand God's grace, it changes everything. This is what we've been talking about for the per- first five weeks of this study. If we truly understand that God has delivered us from sin to death, given us brand new life, it changes how we live. It changes the way that we see the world. It changes how we see ourselves. A few weeks ago, it's, we talked about how it changes how we see the, the orphan and the widow. It changes how we see our own moral filth, that we want to rid our lives of our moral filth, that we want to love people well. When we truly encounter God's grace, it changes everything. All right, now, I need to lay those out there because this is the framework that we're operating in. These are the truths that already exist to James's audience as they hear these words. Saved by grace alone, I can't earn God's love. And because I've encountered his love, his, his life, and the who he calls me to be, it changes how I see the world and how I see my own life. So, those three things in mind, I know that was a lot, but I want to lay them out there because these texts are challenging, and if we don't read them within the truth of those kind of concepts, we're going to miss what James is saying. So listen to this. James in chapter four, uh, verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food, if one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Faith, it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So what James is laying out in this little section of text that we're going to look at this week and next week is, is an authentic faith versus an inauthentic faith. He's taking this life authenticity thing one step farther. He's saying, how does it play out in how you live and how you think? How does your faith play out in your life? And he says that there's kind of a picture of an authentic faith and there's a picture of an inauthentic faith. And the first thing that we see about, about an authentic faith that James lays out is that a true faith, a genuine faith, should challenge us and push us to have love and compassion for other people. Now, I know that's kind of a, an interesting place to start, but that's where James starts. He says an authentic faith should challenge us to have love and compassion for people. Now, last week, we spent a lot of time unpacking this, talking about what it meant to love your neighbor, remember dirty, messy people, and what it meant to truly love them well, understanding who we are in Jesus Christ, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm going to skip over that for just a minute to get at the heart of what I think James is saying. He's saying this, when you truly encounter God's grace for you, when you know that you have been a sinner, delivered, and saved by God alone, it changes your perspective on everything, and it should change the way that you see people. He says, listen, brothers, those of you that are sitting here, sisters, Christians, if you're sitting here, 
and you've been saved by God's grace, you know that you're a sinner and God has delivered you from that and you see people around you that are starving and naked and dying and you look at them and you say, hey, I'm really sorry that you're like that. I'm really sorry that you're tired and that you're hungry and that you're naked and that you're freezing. I wish you well. And then you go about your life. He says, is that truly real living? Is your faith alive or is it just simply words? Because if you recognize who you were in Jesus Christ, broken, dying, desperate, sinful, absolutely unable to save yourself, but God saves you and redeems you, changes your life, and then calls you to love people, it would change the way that you see people. And it pushes you to love and compassion. That as a believer in Jesus Christ, my heart breaks over the things that break the heart of God. That I can't hear about child sex trafficking. That I can't hear about slavery slavery around the world. That I can't drive by someone, see them starving and not be compelled with compassion and love. See, an authentic faith is pushed to compassion and love for people. By contrast, an inauthentic faith lives in a comfort zone. It lives in a zone that says, this is about me. And although I feel compassion for that person... I'm not compelled to act on it. Although I hate the fact that you're hungry and homeless, I'm not compelled to move. See, an inauthentic faith lives in a place that's safe, and it lives in a place that's comfortable. But an authentic faith can't stay there. See, this was the big heart change that happened to me when I gave my life to Christ, was that I always had compassion for people that were marginalized and oppressed. It always broke my heart to know that there were children in African places that were starving to death. It always broke my heart to know that there were were orphans that were struggling or that there were people that were homeless and, and, and dying of starvation or freezing to death in the winter. That always hurt my heart. But when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, God's grace so compelled me that no longer did I just have compassion, but I was so deeply disturbed by it that I wanted to be part of a solution on some level. I didn't know what that meant, but I just know that I could no longer sit and watch. And my heart began to break for my people that I worked around and that I lived around, my neighbors. And even though they may not be struggling with physical hungry, hunger and thirst, they were struggling with spiritual hunger, and my heart broke for them. I no longer saw the people around me as just neighbors, but I thought, man, my neighbor does not know Jesus. And it breaks my heart because he's such a nice guy and he's spiritually dying. And I no longer could just have somewhat compassion, but I had to be stirred to say, what's it going to take for me to get involved in his life? Because I've been stirred so deeply to think differently about people. Not perfectly, just differently. James says an authentic faith is stirred out of our comfort zone. If you live in a neighborhood and you have never met your neighbors, you've never been broken by the fact that maybe the people around you don't know Christ, if you've never been broken by that, by that lady that shows up in your work every single day and you know that her marriage is falling apart and you know that he's doing this and your heart longs for them to know so much more, you've never been moved to action to just speaking into their life or speaking to them or talking to them or loving them. Or you've never been compelled to get involved in influencing the life of somebody else. These inner city kids that we have that are struggling and hurting in our Oklahoma City community. The fact that one in five children in Oklahoma goes to bed every single night hungry. And we sit in our houses not compelled to be a part of the solution. 
See, James is saying an authentic faith moves beyond our comfort zone. It says, I'm not comfortable doing this, but I'm compelled to live it. So James is, is basically painting a picture saying an authentic faith is, well, it's moved to love and have compassion for people. And by contrast, an inauthentic faith lives in lifelessly in a comfort zone. If your life is surrounded in your little comfort bubble, you have to ask yourself, is my faith really authentic? Maybe it's time to break that zone and decide to live authentically and say, God, I want to live who you call me to live. James goes on to say this, <clears throat> verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Now, some scholars have said that James was actually writing to address a real struggle that was happening back in the day. And that real struggle, that debate, was people were saying there are faith Christians, and there are acts slash works Christians. So there was a group of people that were saying, I'm a Christian by just what I believe, right, over here. And there are a group of people who are saying, no, in order to be a Christian, you have to do this. And those people were fighting and debating and saying, this is true Christianity intellectually. This is true Christianity action, right? And J people are saying that some scholars said James was actually addressing a thing that was actually happening within the church. Christians were fighting about what they believed and who was right or who was wrong. I mean, believe it or not. 2,000 year years later, we haven't been able to get past that. But James says this. Regardless what camp you're in, whether you are a, a, a kind of a intellectual faith belief Christian or whether you decide that Christian is all about your actions, one thing is incredibly true and that is authentic faith is visible. Authentic faith is visible. Now hear me say this because this is really important. When you are redeemed, when you are regenerated, made new, when God steps into your life, saves you and rescues you, you become a brand new creation. Your old life is gone and your new life has come. When you truly begin to realize that, it changes who you are. It changes your identity. It means that you cannot remain the same as you were. Life changes instantly when you meet Christ. And true, authentic faith becomes visible. Why? Because you can't contain it. It changes the way that you think, the way that you feel. It changes the way that you interact. It seeps out of your very pores. It's like, I just can't help it. I live differently now. I think differently now. I feel differently now. I'm compelled to be a different person. You know, the classic question is this, is, is there enough evidence in your life to give you away as a Christian? If Christianity were illegal, right, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? Right, the people at work, we're going to, you know, lock you up, have you arrested. Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you? I run into people all the time. I mean, <clears throat> probably a hundred times people have told me this. Treb, <clears throat> I believe in God, hands down. But I believe that faith is private and it should be kept to ourselves. My dad lived in that category. My dad lived in the category of saying, yes, God is real. But that's just between you and God. We don't talk about that publicly. A lot of us have been raised in households like that. You know the problem with that is the problem with that is simply that if I have an authentic faith, I can't keep it private because it bleeds out of me. I mean, I don't have to shout it from the, every mountaintop in terms of my work life, and I don't have to go to my CEO and go, hey, I just need to tell you this or whatever. I mean, but it just bleeds through me because I treat people differently. I live differently. I do things differently. It seeps out of the pores. I, I just can't help it. 
My heart breaks over the things that break God's heart. My faith is visible. Does it mean it's perfect? It just means it's visible. It means the people around you recognize that you look different than the world. If your life looks the same as the world and your faith is secret, James is basically saying it's inauthentic. Authentic faith is visible. By contrast, inauthentic faith lives in the secret. If you're one of those people that says, I believe in God, but faith is private, the challenge really is this. Is my faith, my trust, who I believe in God, has it really ever changed me? Because if it has, I can't, I can't contain it. I'm a different person. It becomes visible. James says, authentic faith compels us to love people. By contrast, inauthentic faith lives in a comfort zone. James says, authentic faith is visible. By contrast, inauthentic faith lives in the secret, right? And then finally, where we'll kind of wrap up things this morning and leave off for next week is this. James says in that last verse, 19, You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. James leaves us here today by saying this. So you're one of those people that says, you believe that there's one God? Well, good. Guess what? Even the demons believe that and they shudder. What James is saying is he's saying this. Belief in God is not evidence of an authentic faith. He says even the enemy, the demons, believe in one God. And guess what they do? They shudder. Meaning their life moves. See, authentic faith is moving. It is alive. It is living. James says even the demons know there's God and they shudder in the presence of who God is. They recognize his majesty, his glory. They recognize that he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the giver of life. That he is the redeemer of all of mankind. That he is victorious. And the demons even shudder in the presence of God. Yet you, your life doesn't even move when you say I believe in God. You see what James is saying? He's saying you say you believe in God but your faith is so dead that you don't even move in the presence of Almighty, Holy, Redeemer, Majestic, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end God. If we truly understood who God was in all of His majesty and glory, our lives would move. <clears throat> because authentic faith is living. It's alive. It moves and it breathes. Because when we are in the presence of God, we cannot help but to move. We are compelled to be and live differently. See, even the demons, even though they were corrupt and sinful and were very, they were just evidence of the enemy, they shuddered in the presence of God. Yet you claim to believe in God and your life doesn't even, doesn't even move, doesn't even blink. You know, I, I really believe that a lot of us live here. We believe that God is real. We're not going to argue that. We're not going to challenge that. We would never do that. But our lives never move in the presence of holy, majestic God. We are not brought to our knees by our own sinfulness. We're not brought to our knees by our own lack of faith. We're not brought to our knees by the fact that we need Jesus. Instead, we live in this mediocre kind of half-hearted attempt to say, God, I believe who you are. And our actions and our life give us away. Authentic faith is visible. It's living. It moves. By contrast, an inauthentic faith well, it's purely academic. It just says, I believe, and my life isn't moved. If you've never been moved to tears by the gospel of Jesus Christ at some point in time in your life, by the recognition that you are absolutely and totally dead and dying, 
And that God loved you so much that he sent his son to give you life and that you are no longer that creation, but you are new. You've never been moved in your heart to weeping. You've got to ask yourself, what do I truly believe about who God is? Wrap everything up with this thought. <clears throat> Authentic faith is, it moves us to compassion because it changes the way that we see the world. Inauthentic faith lives in comfort. Authentic faith is visible. I can't help it. It just pours out of me. I just love you, even though I know I shouldn't. I just do. By contrast, inauthentic faith lives in the secret. And finally, authentic faith is, well, it's living. It recognizes who God is and all his majestic glory and who I'm not and all my sinful mess. And I may not be the world's greatest academic and I may not be able to read Hebrew and Greek and, and recite every vi- voice of, of scripture text to you, but I can tell you this. God is real, and he moves me. So if your life is stuck in the comfort zone, if it's stuck in a safe place, maybe it's time to get dangerous. Maybe it's time to release that, to step out of the the kind of facade that you've lived in and begin to live in a true freedom that says, God, I want to know you. I want to have a faith that's alive and living and active. As we close our time in worship this morning, I want you to ask yourself this. Is my faith authentic? I mean, is it really authentic? And if it's not, maybe it's time to live a little bit more dangerous. Maybe it's time to step out of the secret. Maybe it's time to be a little bit more visible. Maybe it's time to be moved by the presence of God. Maybe it's no longer time to just let my sin run my life. Maybe it's time to say, God, I want to have a faith authentic. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who